Stand by while NCLA cuts through the noise to signal abuse of administrative power. This is Administrative Static with Mark Chenoweth and John Vecchione. Welcome back to Administrative Static. Mark Chenoweth and John Vecchioni with you here. And we're going to talk about Elon Musk's offer to buy Twitter for $43 billion. And Vec, I was on Twitter this morning. I am not on Twitter. Uh, I believe you are also not on Twitter. I'm uh, not, but I, I used to review Twitter all the time, but they've changed it so you can only look at like four Twitters and then it's it freezes you out. So I'm thinking of getting on. Yeah, it's uh, it is it is definitely harder to read through uh, than it used to be. Uh, NCLA is on Twitter. You can follow us at NCLA Legal if you are so inclined. Uh, I was on Twitter this morning uh, following some some stories about my uh, Kansas Jayhawks. I have not uh, come down off of cloud nine yet from the uh, Kansas Jayhawks men's basketball national championship. So I've I've been reading all there is to read about that uh, this week on on Twitter and other platforms. Uh, but I'm uh, stunned but, that you got that in in this segment. But go ahead. <laughs> well, it, it wasn't too much of a reach. I really was on Twitter reading about it this morning. But in any event, I uh, uh, was uh, was at the same time uh, somewhat surprised to read about this offer to to buy Twitter. I guess I shouldn't have been because Musk had had announced this uh, nine point something percent stake that he had acquired uh, earlier uh, earlier in the month and. Uh, the, they had offered to put him on the on the board of Twitter, and then as one of the I guess it was a nine point two percent stake that he had uh, that he had acquired. But as one of the conditions for offering him a seat on the board, he had to agree not to increase his stake in the company above a certain level. And I, I can't remember what that was, Vec, but it was fourteen or fifteen percent, I think, something in that uh, in that neighborhood. And the fact that he it then came out that he was not going to be uh, taking that uh, offered board seat might suggest to somebody that he was interested in taking a stake greater than that limit. So, so perhaps, uh, perhaps I shouldn't have been too surprised, but, but he's talking about uh, taking the whole thing, taking a hundred percent of the, uh, uh, of the company. And I, I find that a little bit surprising. Maybe he wants it to be a private company because he doesn't want to be uh, regulated by the sec <laughs> if he, <laughs> if he owns it. Because if he if he just bought fifty point one percent of it, he he would effectively own it and could control the board seats and and so forth. So uh, I'm wondering if there's something more to this than just control of the company. He's also wanting to take it private to uh, uh, to avoid the SEC, perhaps. But in any event, he sent a letter uh, to the uh, uh, I guess it would have been to the CEO of of uh, Twitter, Parag Agrawal, and. I'll just read the whole letter because it's fairly fairly short. Elon Musk says, I invested in Twitter as I believe in its potential to be the platform for free speech around the globe, and I believe free speech is a societal imperative for a functioning democracy. However, since making my investment, I now realize the company will neither thrive nor serve this societal imperative in its current form. Twitter needs to be transformed as a private company. As a result, I am offering to buy 100% of Twitter or $54.20 per share in cash, a 54% premium over the day before I began investing in Twitter, and a 38% premium 
over the day before my investment was publicly announced. My offer is my best and final offer, and if it is not accepted, I would need to reconsider my position as a shareholder. Twitter has extraordinary potential. I will unlock it, Elon Musk. And there's a lot to unpack in that in that letter. Uh, but uh, first, I wanted to point out a couple of things about this, Vec. One is that the Washington Post is characterizing this as a hostile takeover of Twitter. And that's just wrong. That, 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 that This does not meet the definition of a hostile takeover. He is offering to buy the shares. There's nothing... Uh, there's nothing coercive. There's there's no uh, you know gun to the head of of the board here. Uh, this is not a hostile takeover. Uh, if he now that's not to say that it couldn't become a hostile takeover, but that's not what this is right now. So I was a little surprised to see uh, the Washington Post mischaracterize uh, what what this is. Uh, the second thing is the talking heads have been going nuts this morning, talking about how you know this would. Uh, this would the, the Twitter would no longer be a, a sort of a, a a source of of reliable information and and how this would be a, a, a sort of disaster for uh, for free speech and I, I I don't know about you Vec I view it as just the opposite I mean there are so few outlets now that are that are not being controlled uh, by this uh, you know, common narrative in the mainstream media that happens to coincide in many cases with the administrative state's views with the Biden administration's views that if, if you were to you know, talk radio is, is one exception. The, I, think, and, I think the fear that you're seeing out there from this is, you know, Elon isn't some, he's not a lawyer. He's not like, uh, he, he, he doesn't seem to have a, a fixed philosophy, but he's heterodox. And, and they, they, the commentators appear to be afraid of heterodoxy, maybe more than they are of conservatives or of, or of uh, uh, of crackdowns on speech, they just don't like not knowing what he's going to do. Well, and you have Devin Nunez, the former uh, member of Congress, running the the Truth Social Network that the Trump administ- that, that uh, former President Trump is is touting. Uh, but I you know I don't know that much about Nunez's uh, uh, business record prior to to being a congressman, but he certainly doesn't have anywhere close to the kind of successful business record that Elon Musk has. I mean, he's not Pretty talking sure he's about a farmer. Yeah, that could be in California. If he came from a conservative part of California, that that's, you know, that's not unlikely. Uh, but in any event, uh, Musk has this tremendous record of, of running companies in a profitable way and have every reason to believe that he would try to run Twitter in a profitable way. And if you are, a- if he were able to take over Twitter and show that you can run a free speech platform that, that allows uh, voices to to spread information uncensored, and you can do so in a profitable way, and uh, you know that is a threat to uh, the existing hierarchy, which currently doesn't allow President Trump on Twitter, but does allow uh, President Putin on Twitter, and the Ayatollah Khomeini, and uh, the Mujahideen, and the uh, and ISIS, and you know all these other folks uh, are allowed to be on on Twitter, but not uh, uh, you know not the former president of the United States. So. I think that, uh, and as we know from our lawsuit against against the Surgeon General, the government has been exerting tremendous pressure on Twitter uh, to take down so-called COVID misinformation, except in this case, a lot of the misinformation is information that the government later admitted was truthful information. So it was just ahead of the curve information, not misinformation. And the fact that the government is unable to reliably distinguish between inaccurate information and ahead of the curve, accurate information 
is a really good reason why the government shouldn't be uh, in the censorship business and it shouldn't be uh, coercing Twitter to be in this in the censorship business. And by the way, when it does coerce Twitter to be in the censorship business, regardless of who owns Twitter, that is state action and that is violative of the First Amendment. That's what our lawsuit's about. But John, tell me what you think about about this uh, Elon's takeover of of Twitter here. What do you do? You think that uh, Twitter can I, be transformed as a private company? Well, you know, I, I think it could be, but what I really think is, is it a hostile takeover or not? It obviously doesn't appear to be, but there is this: a lot of people follow Elon Musk. There are other shareholders. He's just increased the value of their shares. In fact, I read that there's going to be a shareholder suit that somehow he bought the initial shares and he didn't give enough notice so that there's some sort of shareholder suit against him. But, you know, that who the heck knows if that's anything. But what I do think is interesting is what happens to the board if they reject this? What are the shareholders going to do to them? Uh, if, if Elon Musk then sells his basically 10%, let's say, um, and uh, and the shares all drop uh, in value, I think the board gets in trouble. So it, it, he's created a conundrum for them without uh, really risking it, because forty three billion dollars is not chump change even for even for him. Right. So it 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 is it is a uh, it is an interesting conundrum he's put them in. But I do think that you'd have a lot less controversy about censorship if Musk was running the show. And I, and I think that Twitter would go up in value because of that. I don't think it'd go down in value. I, I don't think that this, its current algorithms or however it does these things is helping it. Well, and I, I would think that some of these uh, also ran uh, platforms might, uh, uh, might become unprofitable if Twitter falls into Elon Musk's hands. Uh, oh, I, there, I there's sure no reason to jump may, onto that- them. Yeah, that may happen to the to the Trump back the Devin Nunes one anyway, but but I think that's absolutely right. If if everyone can get on there and uh, say their piece, I, I think the and, and not fear censorship, right? And I think that that the attractiveness of of the other platforms goes down. But um, we'll see. Including I, Facebook, by the way. Yeah, why does the board want to reject this? Because they won't be in charge anymore. What what's the story? Well, I don't know. Uh, I you know this is. Uh, I have not been uh, following everything that's been that's been said uh, this morning, so I'm not sure what the what the arguments are. There may be some financial arguments that, that the dollar figure isn't high enough based on some sort of you know, pre-existing future revenue projections or something like that. I haven't I haven't followed the uh, uh, you know the sort of dollars and cents uh, side of it, so I don't know if there are arguments about whether the particular figure that he's cooked up. Uh, is is adequate uh, or not but uh uh but i i assume that the current membership of the board of twitter is not aligned with elon musk's free speech views and i suppose they could just re- reject the the offer on that basis yeah i suppose i guess that's true but i don't you know i i guess i i do think corporate boards like money um that's sort of my baked in the cake view. I don't think it's like the New York Times editors who who might, you know, oh, we're not going to sell it to that guy. Spike Senator Cotton's op-ed. Yeah, exactly. So I, I don't know. I, I will say this. Once again, he's on the top of the headlines. He's causing a lot of conversations about free speech and the le- what what the what the, um, the the culture should be rather than the law. I mean, Elon doesn't talk about the law much. 
He talks about the culture of innovation and the culture of free speech. And it's, it's really something that's all on the front pages now because of him. Yeah, it's on the front pages, and he's shown that there's more than one way to, uh, uh, to potentially turn Twitter around. It doesn't have to take long. We'll be back with more right after this. Welcome back to Administrative Static, and uh, we have uh, a topic that has been roiling uh, at least D.C., but certain parts of the legal world, which is, uh, it's kind of a blended uh, rule, but it, it's recusal, when Supreme Court justices should recuse and what their conflicts are and this sort of thing. And um, how did it emerge? It emerged because somebody leaked from the January 6th committee emails of Ginny Thomas, who is um, Clarence Thomas's wife. Wait, a uh, congressional committee leaked information? I'm shocked, shocked. It, it is. It's stunning to, it's stunning. Or, or maybe I'm casting stones. Maybe it came from somewhere else. Uh, but, you know, I think the news reports that, that they leaked it to had the decency to say where they got it. <laughs> so pretty pretty sure not, it didn't come from the Supreme Court. I'll put it that way. That is exactly right. And so Ginny Thomas, uh, during... Uh, she had gone to the a lovely woman, by the way. She had gone, yeah. I, I've I've been, uh, you know, I've been doing this a long time, so I've I've met her a number of times at at judicial uh, things, and and in, in any event, um, she uh, wrote some emails about uh, the the election and whether it could whether it was fair and all this other stuff, and 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 I will say this. It looks to me like the emails were right after the election. It doesn't look to me like long after January 6th, she was sending a bunch of emails out on this. It was just the emails were leaked about the period right after the election when all those rumors were flying around. But be that as it may, it's not the sort of emails I would want to have out there or have written. But um, so what is that? What's got that got to do with the price of eggs? Well, all of uh, Washington is uh, from our last segment, a Twitter with the idea, uh, ha, 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 ha. yeah, that's what I did, and and, and with the idea that Clarence Thomas, Ginny uh, Thomas's husband, has to recuse from any January sixth cases, and there's been a uh, a number of types of speculation. One is that Thomas has whatever views she had in November of uh, of uh, twenty twenty. And that therefore he's not unbiased, and so because his wife thinks this, he must think this, and and so he's got to not do gen, you know anything anything related to the January sixth investigations. No no cases regarding them, um, and also he has been um, somewhat more protective of executive privileges than some of the other justices. So obviously there's a political reason they want him out. Um, but the I was going to say, that's not new since November. He's been, right, right, <laughs> or, exactly. you know, November a year ago. Uh, he's been and that then, way his entire time on the bench. Exactly. And then his other, the other idea is that because Jenny Thomas, it works for these various, uh, what I'll call movement organizations that try to, to influence politics in this, that if they file an amicus brief in a case that he has to recuse. Well, that's interesting. Now, our, our 
a friend of the podcast who we, we've had on once and, and who we read all the time. He calls himself a recovering lawyer, but um, he's actually a legal an analyst, analyst, I would say now. But uh, Dan McLaughlin has written a great piece on this, and, and much of my thinking on this um, is taken from that piece. It's in National Review. It is a serious look at Justice Thomas's unserious critics on recusals. So why do you recuse? You recuse when a reasonable person would think that you have bias in the case. That's the standard. And, and un, you know, you'll hear us from some commentators that the Supreme Court has no rules. Well, they do have rules. Just they, they enforce it themselves. And so you recuse yourself if you find out that you have money in something or you divest yourself. What, what was found out is, is that there was a famous case and this is the overwhelming percentage of recusals that happen is based on stock ownership. When you see that Justice Alito or Justice Breyer, I think those are the two that have recused probably the most in the last uh, 15 or 20 years. It, it's almost always as a result of stock ownership in, in a company that's uh, before the court. Right. They had Lloyd's of London, as I recall. That was their big investment. So, And of course, they're a big insurer. So there are all these cases and they were getting out at the. But there was one Alcoa, the big aluminum, the can people. There was a famous case back, I think, in the 40s or 50s, where every member of the Supreme Court had to recuse. <laughs> they all like, owned Alcoa stock. <laughs> they all owned Alcoa. So they all had to get the heck out of there. And so, of course, the lower court decision stuck. Um, and so um, so I, I'm just absolutely stunned by the whole thing. And and, and I mean, that I, I did not know or I'd forgotten about that case. But so... So there are slightly different rules for the Supreme Court for this reason. If any other judge recuses, some other judge can take his place. So if, if you are an appellate panel and you find out that, uh, you know, the, the company's own, uh, the chief of the company is your nephew, you, yeah. you, can, you, can, you can recuse and another judge will come in. It's not a huge deal, but that's not how the Supreme Court works. You, you, you're in or you're out, and it could be a, a, a big deal. Um, and so what is, what Wait, is my happening son's here? on the board of Barisma? How did that happen? I didn't know that was. <laughs> oh, 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 in any event, I, that's a hypothetical. I'm sure. Hypothetical. In, hypothetical. Any, in any event. So I, I do think that, that why are they doing this? They want to work the reps. If, if you have a progressive view of the law, you want to get Thomas off or, or Roberts or, uh, or, well, some of us might not think you want to get Roberts off Thomas or, or, um, Alito off. And if, if you're conservative, you want to get, uh, you know, Sotomayor out of there. And, and, and this is this is working the refs. But but as McLaughlin points out, as I say all the time, the rules have to be the same for everybody. So if if your wife having some sort of strong political views is is going to be a recusal thing. I mean, Judge Pillard here in D.C., her, her husband runs the ACLU. I mean, what the heck is she going to sit on after that? It, it, it's a crazy rule. It's a crazy rule. Well, um, and I'm not sure what exactly it has to do with the cases that would come before the Supreme Court. I mean, if this argument were being made in the context of a specific case, and let's say the case involved uh, a challenge to the electors of the state of Georgia or Wisconsin or something like that, okay, maybe you have maybe there there's a room for some sort of of conversation about that but the idea that if for example a habeas case came up for a prisoner that's that and we've been hearing some horror stories about this by the way John about people who are still locked up after January 6th and have never been brought in front of a magistrate or 
you know, have not uh, have not had the sort of due process that would have been accorded to anybody else who was locked up for anything else on January 6th. The, the idea that he would have to recuse from that kind of a habeas case doesn't make any sense to me at all based on based on these uh, these disclosures. Yeah. And I, but I, you know, it's subpoenas by the January 6th committee and all this other stuff, I think. I, I don't know that they're, they're, they seem, you know, AOC uh, has asked that he resign from, from uh, the bench. You know, this is so terrible that he has to resign for the bench, which is ridiculous, obviously. But it does point to this in that with all of our institutions coming under attack and people losing faith in them, the Supreme Court does have to take this sort of thing seriously. And this is why they are allowed, they, they are allowed to divest themselves from stock. The old rule that Alcoa rule was that if you had, there was no, there was no cleaning it off. There was no way to get rid of your bias, uh, even if it was a money thing by getting rid of the money incentive. That was sort of the idea. But the Supreme Court probably ended that because um, you, you, you knew that once they didn't have any money in it, well, what, what could the complaint be? I, I think it was a wise rule, but I also think that the justices do have to be careful. Um, you know, I what I think is Kagan worked with the Biden, uh, excuse me, Obama administration on um, on Obamacare. She came up with some strategies for getting it through the courts and everything. And yet she was she was part of the five four decision upholding Obamacare. She didn't resign in that situation. And I'm not saying I don't think she had to because she hadn't appeared in court or anything. I, I, I think that that I'm not intimating that she should have. But I'll tell you this. It, it causes a lot um, more problems than uh, than than what they're alleging about Thomas because his wife was somehow involved. And and I will say that I will note that Justice Kagan did strike down the part of Obamacare that that made the states have to do certain things. If, if, you know, if if they didn't want to take the uh, Medicaid, she was part uh, of she, the seven to two on that. Yeah, yeah. So she she struck down part of it. So it wasn't like. Uh, uh, she upheld the main thing as the as the court did, but that part was five four, you know. So, um, I do think that uh, there are a lot of these that come up, and on the lower courts, I mean, uh, you McLaughlin goes in about Judge Reinhardt and his wife and all the things they did, and and it's really uh, shocking, and and uh, and and it has you know some problems with it, but. Here, this is a political attack on Justice Thomas because they don't like his rulings. But I think it's pretty, pretty bad business, um, particularly in the modern age, uh, when a lot of wives are going to have big deal jobs. They're they're going to be active in in uh, public life, sure. and if you have to recuse for an amicus brief, that you know, sometimes these big cases in the Supreme Court, there are seventy two amicus briefs. I, you know, your spouse may not know that an amicus brief has been put in by their organization, depending on where they are in it. And the judge may not know that they, whether they were involved or not. I mean, uh, we, we do amicus briefs here and they're important and they signal the court and often tell the court important things, but the, the amicus don't have an interest the way parties do. And the, and the judges, uh, if they've got to, if they've got to have, you know, anyone, who they're married to can't have be in an organization that's putting an amicus brief in. I, I think it becomes ridiculous. Well, and some of the courts of appeals around the country have a different rule, which is that if your amicus brief would require a judge to recuse, then the brief is bounced. So, you know, that's the other way of handling this. It doesn't have to be 
some sort of strategic recusal by you know by seeking a Miki that might disqualify a judge. You could also just have the rule that it, that the the brief is disallowed. That that's true. You you could do that. Um, and but again, I I just don't think I don't think it's uh, it, it works. But uh, I I will. There's also some legislative action where they're trying to say they're going to try and push through laws that Supreme Court justices have to do this or that. And I think that sets up an Article Three, Article One problem. Uh, yeah, that's a separation of powers issue. Right, and and it could it could ask for more trouble. So if it ain't broke, don't fix it. And I don't think it's broke. Well, they they didn't get away with court packing, so now they're going to try court shrinking. Is that what's going on? <laughs> 